Welcome to episode 20 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined by Dan Wellington. Hello. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you'd like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store. That way, any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And I have to say, I've already started seeing more and more people using that Element Games affiliate link, which is great because I know people are listening to the show. I know people are enjoying their hobby, getting themselves some awesome stuff and helping support us in the process, which is just excellent. I used it the other day. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for supporting the show, Dan. Yay! How are you doing? Have you managed to make it through 2020 intact? Uh, I am still here. Which is yeah, good. I think. Um, and okay. believe it or not, we are in fact still here on the show because I know it's been a while. Uh, unfortunately, the holidays and everything else leading up to the end of 2020 just... Uh, made it a little difficult to get a December episode out this year, or last year, rather. But um, we're back. It is January. I said I would get a January episode out, and uh, hopefully I've already got some more dates lined up for next recordings, and we'll be looking to try and make the show far more regular for 2021. So that is good news. And hopefully, Dan, that means we'll be hearing more of you on the show as well, as well as... Dave and Jake and Chris and other Dan and all the other contributors out there. Well, hopefully there'll be some without me on so I can listen to them. This is episode 20 and on it we're going to be discussing something that I mentioned back in November last year, which was the Agavon campaign, the first of the new Flashpoint series in White Dwarf, which I think has been quite interesting and thankfully it's taken White Dwarf, you know, three months to produce it all, which has given me enough time to stall making this episode for it. <laughs> um, but I've got it all now, I've gone through it all, and I think it's really interesting to talk about. So that's going to be our main sort of spotlight topic for later on. Um, we are going to catch up a little bit on what we've been doing in our paint station garrison, possibly some games played, um, and one or two announcements. But um, yeah, that's sort of a general gist of what we're going to be talking about today. Does it sound does it sound good to you, Dan? Yeah. yeah I mean, that's. Uh, I'm very interested to hear all about this uh, um, narrative campaign system that is kind of crusade, but not exactly 100% only crusade. Yeah, it's interesting because that's essentially what it is. It's a, it's a system for playing... So like a three month campaign of 40k it doesn't have to be prescribed to crusade but there's definitely some stuff in there that's intended to like add 
another layer to the Crusade rules um, if you want to use it, but it can also be used for you know just standard sort of match play campaigns or open play campaigns or even just narrative ones that are not using the Crusade system. But it's a it's a, a good one to be honest, and uh, we'll touch on that in a little bit. Um, so first up, just a couple of quick announcements for the show. First of all, we've got another new patron. All right. So thank you to Six a Biscuit. That's all I have to go on. That is the uh, username that's registered. Um, so wherever you are, Six Biscuit, thank you. Uh, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for supporting, and your contribution goes a long way to helping. You know, basically, help us make more of the show. So we hope you enjoy it. I always find that the sixth biscuit is a good one. <laughs> Especially if it's a jammy dodger. Uh, yes, um, and then the other little announcement I wanted to make is more sort of kind of a, an update on where we're at as a show because recently, over the new year, the podcast has ticked up and over the 8,000 lifetime downloads, which... I have to say has just been a real like surprise and joy to learn because I think it was about six months back that I announced that it just gone over the 1000 lifetime downloads mark. So like that growth really is quite exponential. Um, and I can still see it going up now, even when it's been a good six, eight weeks since the last episode, I can still see that the most recent ones are still getting some more listens and more listens. And uh, most episodes now, I think, are reaching, on average, about 500 downloads per episode. Um, so it's doing really well. And I think that is just, you know, probably a big thank you more than anything to our listeners who no doubt have probably been spreading the word a little bit. Um, even the like reviews and the comments and um, just the downloads themselves is helping aggregate the show now throughout all those different platforms and podcast providers. And I'm getting more and more requests in the Facebook group from people who say that they just found the show from like searching for 40k podcasts, you know, searching for narrative 40k. Like it sounds, it sounds obvious, but it takes time for these algorithms to really start putting us at the front of those searches. And it's starting to show now. So I'm really hoping that, you know, it's only going to continue to grow. And as such, I really want to start helping develop the show more and, you know, make it better quality for all you guys out there. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite the little bit of an achievement for me. I mean, I even got an email the other day from Podbean. That's the, um, podcasting hosting provider I use that basically says, Congratulations on being a successful podcast. Would you like to join our affiliate program? Hey. So I imagine probably 8K or maybe it was 5K for them. It's just taken time for it to get around to me. But clearly it is some sort of milestone for typical podcasts. So I'm uh, quite pleased to have made it. I'm looking forward to hitting hopefully 10K not too soon. Cool. So yeah, so whilst I've been busy working on plans for the podcast, maybe we should move on to what we've been busy getting up to in our paint station garrison. So we'll be back in a second, guys. 
And we're back guys. So, we are once again revisiting our paint station garrison. So tell me Dan, what have you been up to in your hobby in, I don't know, over the new year, the last yeah. month or two? The, the, the recent past. Um, the recent past, yeah. yes. So I, I have been doing quite a bit of stuff, actually. Uh, but I'm mainly going to talk about the things I've been doing for me. Uh, I managed to grab a um, the the big Tyranid box uh, before Christmas, so I, I bought myself a little Christmas present there. Uh, a little Christmas present. Like, what exactly came in that? Because that must be a lot of books. Uh, well, the the Tyranid box. It's got what did it have in it? Sixteen concealers, ten gargoyles. Hive Guard, uh, the um, Exocrine, and a Hive Tyrant. So it's quite a bit of stuff. Uh, and I've been I've built the uh, the Gene Sealers. I think the Hive Guard are going to be next on the list. Um, I, in the back of my mind, I had the idea that there might be a new Codex along at some point, so I might keep the uh, the Hive Tyrant to the back of the queue in case a Codex comes along some point in the year and tells me. Actually, that weapon you were going to put on it is rubbish now. Put the other one on. Well, I I don't know how easy or difficult it is to magnetize, say, like big tyranny models, because I know quite often, isn't it, like multiple limbs that kind of come together to yeah. form some other weapons. They're, they're a bit more challenging than some stuff. I um In the past, I've magnetized the Tyranifex to, so I can run it with all the different guns. Um I know some people have sort of magnetized it so you can make it into a turbigan as well, which is uh, a bit much. Uh, but basically, because my Tyranid army's been going for so long, um, I, I sort of have this semi-annual rip the arms off the monsters and replace them with whatever is the best arm <laughs> from the bitch box. It's, it's called evolution. Exactly. It's just the way it works. So <laughs> that'll come along at some point. But for now, we're just building up uh the the yeah what we've got so as alluded to i do have quite a large tyranny collection already so we're really just kind of like filling that out a bit uh, i've now gone up to 40 gene sealers which is a nice number uh, and i finally got as mentioned the exocrine in the hive guard which are uh some key units that i hadn't got around to buying <laughs> um every tyranny player knows are like the two best units in the codex pretty much uh, so that's what I've been building. Um, oh, and I guess at, at some point I built the things that I'm about to tell you I painted because uh, I got both of them for Christmas. Uh, well, to be fair, one of them wasn't so much built as more produced, wasn't it? Well, uh, mm, I mean, I didn't do the producing. I just stuck the wheels on. Uh, <laughs> but it was a 3D printed thing, which is uh, very interesting. Um, that we'll we'll talk about that. It's a a um, a gene stealer cult inspired limousine, which is uh, yeah, quite interesting. It's that's... kind of drawing drawing from the the ancient past. Uh, <laughs> games workshop one of those things from sort of like Rogue Trader days. Yeah, it? yeah. The, so the infamous gene stealer cult limousine. Yeah. So uh, I don't uh, think they um, ever made a model of it, but there were sort of somewhat infamous conversions um appearing in in sort of publications way back in the uh like early 90s or whatever 
Um, yeah, I've seen the one that you've got because you put it up in the Facebook group. Yeah. And I think, like you said, it's really good. To be honest, at first, until I read the post, I didn't realise the chassis of the limousine was a 3D printed gift that you've been given. Yeah. Um, I actually thought you'd taken um, a what I assumed was a Ridge Runner and an uh, a Torox, I think, and sort yeah. of like extended the holes and put it's, the um, on I mean, it, I thought it was a complicated conversion, but actually nope. it's a, <laughs> yeah, a simple conversion when yes. you just put some gun turrets and wheels on it. I put a gun turret on the, on the, on the top. But yeah, it's it's very nicely designed to make it look like it kind of fits in with the current range and also has that sort of nostalgia of the very old style that the old kind of GC occult conversions used to have. Um but yeah, I'm I'm very pleased with it because it's uh, sort of a a bit of kind of campy fun for uh Yeah, and I do think army. that this is like an excellent example of the sort of things that you know 3D printing can be really good for. Because it's allowed you to add something to your yeah. army that you wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. Yeah, definitely. And it's been it's definitely been created in that spirit of enhancing the hobby, as opposed to any other potential uses of 3D printing. Yes, it, it complements the army rather than replacing a thing that I would otherwise have bought. <laughs> yes, uh, so that's good. It, it looks really good. Like I said, it's um, a cool little nod back to some sort of 40k roots almost um so yeah if you want to check that out you can go see it over on the the narrative wargamer facebook group um and then on the other end of the scale you've got a another sort of rather yeah, large so completed project haven't you he's he's a bit of a chonker um this <laughs> is so i um i got uh it's the uh it's known as the norzilla from uh Cromlech. it's a big resin model that is the equivalent of the forge world regular squiggoth uh, so this has joined my orc army um uh this I, is your steak bites isn't it yes so it's it's on theme uh the eight years and years ago i was given the uh gargantuan squiggoth from forge world um which was uh obviously a uh, kind of a big center point of the army uh and he's called nipper <laughs> So uh, I decided to the the new squig off to be Nipper Junior. So I I painted him up in the same kind of color scheme. He's now got a a not so little little buddy. Yeah. So I mean the model's still pretty big. Uh, it's uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's this, a squig off. It's good yeah. for me. It's it's I think the same dimensions as the Forge World one, um, which is roughly the size of like, uh, I mean maybe. It's a, it's a bit smaller than a Land Raider, but it's bigger than like a Lehman Russ or something. It's a yeah, it's a it's big. A, it's quite it's tall as well. Imposing thing, yeah. yeah. It, it's probably more. You think the sort of scale of the like behemoths in Age of Sigma and stuff like that, isn't it? Yeah, it's that kind of that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but, no, that one looks really good as well. Yeah, let's see. I saw you. Um, you put your you put that up on your own blog post, didn't you? Yeah. Um, showing him off and I had a glance through that and I thought that was really really interesting as well to see so yeah it sounds yeah, like you've been up to um, dealing with all kinds of purple gribblies <laughs> of all yeah. and sizes so, uh, it's a good excuse to do all of this sort of rust and grime that I like to paint on models on the, all the orky metal bits um, well speaking of rust and grime 
uh, by myself. See what we did there. Being... Yeah. <laughs> uh, now you're drawing attention to it. <laughs> Don't worry, that was uh, a perfectly seamless link. No one will notice. I've been working once again on a mix of my Orcs 40k and on my Escher gangs for Necromunda. So most recently I've been working on the um, looted gun wagon for my Orcs, which is actually one of these looted Lieben Russes I've had for uh, some years now, but I finally got around to getting it painted. And I'd say I'm really pleased with how it's coming together. So I've been, you know, knocking out my usual sort of like paint scheme for my Orcs now. So um, even though this is quite a large thing, because it's, I mean, it's a standard Lehman Ross, but it's also got lots of extra Orky bits bolted onto it. It's got a whole additional like flatbed truck section. Yeah, I added on the back. I I wouldn't describe it as a standard Lehman Russ. No, <laughs> it's a Lehman Russ Plus yeah. at this point, isn't it? <laughs> Um, but like the logic when I built this was that one I wanted it to be a looted vehicle to represent this battle wagon because like death skulls if I have an opportunity to loot something I will do Yep. secondly I thought right well it's this big looted armoured vehicle and it's going into battle and what's the main thing that death skulls go into battle for it's for looting everything after the battle <laughs> so having this big you know hunking tank that's got a massive sort of flatbed truck on the back of it allows for one carrying lots of the boys to the fight and two it allows somewhere for them to load up all the good loot and scrap after the fight and bring it back to their camp or base or workshop or whatever so it sort of like works twofold in in my mind it's both transport and storage device (laughs) for these orcs um so yeah, it's pretty big. I think it's sort of, it's sort of like in length. It's about like two Lewin Russes in length almost, rather than just nice. one. Um, it's, I'm really pleased with it. But yeah, so I've got it um, coming together now in all my sort of Death Skull colour schemes. So I've got all the like the main blue hole done and the all the metallics done. And I'm sort of adding the what I call like the highlight plates now. So things like some black armour plates here, some clips there and all the rest of it um and then once those are done i can add a couple of transfers and then go for all my weathering and it'll be finished and that'll be the first of two and then i'll have to do it all again (laughs) um so on the reverse side of that the thing i've been working on as well is um the reinforcements i got for my escher gang a couple months back so when the house of blades stuff was eventually available to purchase i picked up the death maiden and wild runners box set right um and i finished building and painting my first death maiden which i'm so glad i did that thing in sub assembly like it wasn't (laughs) a huge number of pieces because all it was was basically (laughs) it was basically head on and head off sort of thing so right. like the only real parts was the head and the headdress and the hair all as one thing and then the rest of her. <laughs> so just this headless <laughs> Escher uh, like gang of wielding swords and blades and knives and things. Um, but it, the reason why it was difficult was because the hair that on this headdress was like flowing out in three long braids 
um, behind her. So if I'd built her up as one piece, trying to get my brush in between those braids of hair to paint the back of her torso and her legs and all the you know other trinkets and fetishes and um, sidearms and grenades and chem simps and all the rest of it that's on that body would have just been impossible. <laughs> And not even in terms of avoiding getting paint on the hair. I painted the hair second. Just physically getting the brush in there would have been a pain. So anyone painting any Asher Death Maidens, I highly advise keeping the head separate and gluing it on afterwards. It'll save you a ton of worry. But the end result I was really pleased with. So um, I've got some pictures of her up on my Instagram and I was really pleased with how she came out. Um, there's a stage where she seems ridiculously bright and garish because she's got so to say that she's supposed to be this like near undead ganger from a hive world who's been brought back from the like the very verge of death if not beyond through chemical and alchemical sort of like resurrection she's got really I've painted her as having like really pallid flesh and a sort of deathly tone in her body but because she's an Escher ganger, she's wearing like yellow armor plates and she's <laughs> got pink hair, <laughs> like in her hair dye and everything. Um, but it's paired with like blacks and deep purples and these other sort of like dark tones, which when it all comes together, it has this more sort of like um, punkish look than in your face bright bubblegum look sort of thing um, and I'm quite pleased with that uh, so I'm glad that she came together really well um, and then the next little thing from that box I've been working on is the feelingses so the little like lizard rats the first of the menagerie of little Escher creatures that are now available to us to unleash in games of Necromunda so each of these I equally want to do in sort of very bright and flamboyant colours because it's the sort of warning tones of nature but taken to the extreme. So you see like um, these like rainforest frogs and stuff, they're all bright <laughs> colours. Um, all like emerging in different blends across their skin and body and stuff and I've applied that to these feelingses. So like the first one I've done, they've got the sort of like fleshy um paws and more of like a rat but then right. that blends into a that blends into an almost like turquoisey green skin tone that then goes up into a a purple and blue um like head fin and like spot and okay. like dorsal fin nice. a bit like a, a lizard man skink yes and then to top it off, I've also decided to then paint a vertical sort of like tiger zebra stripe pattern on the torso. So you've got this creature that has scaly hands and paws like a rat, but has like smooth um, scaly skin like a lizard, including having dorsal fins, but also has tiger stripe pattern to that like skin tone <laughs> pretty wild then yes and then on top of that it's running around on a steel industrial base like it's in the middle of some factory 
So it's not even like it's on a jungle base, as you typically <laughs> expect of some sort of model like that. And that is just the first of four, and the other three are all going to be different primary colours, <laughs> one of which I've got as being sort of like a yellowy-orange um, that's going to also have tiger stripes and then a pinkish hue one that's going to have sort of like leopard print skin. And, and the idea is you can see that these phalanxes are kind of where the Escher gangers get their colourful hides and um, furs from that they wear. Right. So you can see that the, these are the creatures that are represented in the outfits that they wear, which I've also painted on these other models in my gang. So it's uh, it's interesting jumping between you know, rusty, beaten steel of an orc tank <laughs> to ridiculously bright rat lizard living in the Undhive. Well, I mean, I was going to ask um, if the uh, the furs, if it's the way you describe where they're colourful furs and they take them off the creatures and wear them, or if it's the fact that they just dye the ha- the fur like they dye their hair. No, I've, I mean, it's up to you and your own gang how you want to do it because within the law, there's definitely ways of, you know, it's definitely supported for both instances. For me personally <laughs> and my gang, I like to think that it actually is the furs and hides taken from these creatures. Fair enough. Um, I just had an image of a giant vat of like hair dye and them just dunking rats in it. Like, there you go. <laughs> no, see, that is what the Cordor gangers would be doing if they were attempting to infiltrate an Escher gang. They'd be <laughs> taking all their actual rats and just dipping them in, I don't know, probably yep. vats of chemical runoff. So yes, I've been do, doing my sort of typical mix of grungy 40k sci-fi, but also mixed with my surprisingly punky and bright Necrobunda sci-fi. So while I've been busy doing all sorts of kinds of painting, yep. unfortunately, I don't have anything to report in our games played. However, I yeah, believe funny you that. do that. So, uh, I mean, I, I technically have played some games. Well, go on then. We'll jump over to a games played now, and we'll uh, we'll hear all about them in just a moment. You gets listen up now, and listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you gets supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead? Flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of yous without a proper paint job. So get your ugly hides, tell a paint boy over at Narrative Wah Painter. He'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Narrative Wah Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects, and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at Narrative Right, you kids. Get your loot in the truck and zog off to the paintball. It better be redder and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them RedTube sent you. You might get something extra special. Hi, 
Right, and we're back. So, Dan, you were saying you have technically played yes. some games. Yes. So, this mean it's in the realm of tabletop simulator. That is correct. Obviously, we are not allowed to go and play 40k at people's houses currently. Uh, Sadly, not. Which is a, a big shame, but also uh, justifiable. Hmm. Very so, sensible. So, instead, I have been playing 40k from the comfort of my own home. Uh, via Tabletop Simulator, which is available on Steam if you want to buy it <laughs> yourself. I'm sure at this point now, probably everyone in the Warhammer community has either heard of or tried Tabletop Simulator. I know I myself just have not had the time to even think about it, but I have heard plenty of you know like good experiences with it from people, so... Um... How have you found it? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think everyone's kind of heard of it at this stage. I, off the bat, it is not the same as playing the game on the tabletop. It's not, like, if I had the choice, I would 100% play tabletop every time, like real models, dice, everything. I imagine it must be similar to the experience I've had with playing Blood Bowl in person and for real and playing it on the Xbox. Very much so. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't detract at all from the video game version. It's still very good and legitimate as a game. Like, it it performs well. It is what it is. It's a very, yeah. you know, um, genuine replication of the tabletop game, but it doesn't have the same feel to it for me personally, and I imagine that's what tabletop. So yeah, the main the main like. difference is the tabletop simulator is just a simulator of the tabletop. There's no like inbuilt rules. You just have to know the rules for playing the game, and you literally ah, right. it okay, literally yeah. is a virtual tabletop with virtual models that you pick up in like with the mouse cursor and move around, and then you've got virtual dice you can roll. Uh, so yes. it, it tries to faithfully recre recreate the tabletop experience, hence the name. Um, yeah. But it's uh, you know it, it's it's lacking somewhat. That yeah, said, it's not, it's not a game application as yeah. such. It's not something where you download forty k for this platform, and it is the digital no, game. You, you, I mean, you can is. download like uh, tables to play it on, and yeah, all models and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it, it, you know, it's a way of getting that fix if if you are as obsessed as some of us might be. Um, or oh, some of us, you know, might just start a podcast to talk about it instead. To get I that mean, fix. I mean that that is another option out there. I would probably say that Tabletop Simulator is the easier of the two. <laughs> Quite <laughs> possibly. Work intensive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that said, it is a bit uh, a bit janky. Um, like moving your models around 3D, little 3D models around on a 3D tabletop um, on a 2D screen is sometimes a bit awkward. Uh, there's a lot of models getting kind of like caught on terrain and stuff. It's like playing with gene stealers every game where they all get caught on things. Uh, but it, you know, it, so I guess it replicates that aspect quite well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is it is quite good for just like you know getting the feel of models on the table and then playing the actual game with the actual rules that we all uh, you know would play with oh, if we could. 
Tell so, us about the games yeah, that you so played on. I've actually been playing, um, well, I've actually been kind of running um, a crusade campaign on the uh, the tabletop simulator uh, with some people. Uh, it's been going for a few months now, or a couple of months. I think we started at the start of December. Um, and it's basically just a, you know, I've, I've created a rough narrative uh, about this mysterious world um, that's kind of appeared out of nowhere with loads of uh, weird alien tech and stuff on it. And then obviously because it's 40k, loads of armies have been drawn to it to see what's up uh, and then started fighting over it because that's what you do, right? Pretty much. So I've basically just been putting out these little bits of narrative to go with it while people have been playing their their games on Tabletop Simulator. Uh, and I've been playing a few as well, um, and it is quite. It seems to be going quite well. Uh, like I say, it's not quite the same as in person, but it's it's a reasonable substitute. You can play while you've got sort of Discord on and and talking to people, so you know what's up. Um, it's a nice bit of social interaction, uh, and then you get all the fun of the you know the Crusade system and having silly things like I've got my um, my orc war boss in there uh, is kind of basically the only competent unit in my army uh, <laughs> and he's repeatedly killed lots of stuff and got loads of upgrades uh, but he also managed to get an injury and because I didn't want to like lose XP I rolled on the table uh, so he he's blind in one eye so now he has to re-roll sixes to hit so in, so like, he and really. yeah so every yeah. time I roll to hit, because he's also got um, an ability to re-roll hits like that miss. So I'm re- so I roll to hit on twos, and then I re-roll the ones and the sixes. Yeah, it's uh, you know whatever. Uh, and, he, and he's a snake bite, so he's not got a bionic or anything. He's just gonna just gonna live with it. He's just, he's just gonna have a yeah. blind one eye. I mean, yeah. Because he's a he's a tough old orc, as a snake bite war boss should be. Uh, and um, amusingly, so I've not been playing that much, but a few other people have been playing quite a lot. Um, and one thing of note is in Crusade, uh, the new codexes have a little bit of an advantage in that they have their own specialist agendas, so you can more easily yeah. kind of like rack up the experience points. So I played yeah. against a a, um, a space wolf army that had almost all of his units were were like fully or nearly fully upgraded uh, and most of my armies had most of my units had no upgrades because as previously mentioned they're all rubbish apart from the war boss uh, so at, and the the balancing mechanic in crusaders you get a command point for every two crusade points yeah. they have so i started the game this was a um a 75 power level game so the equivalent of you'd normally start with twelve command points. It's the yeah. equivalent of like fifteen hundred points, right? I started with twenty eight. <laughs> right. It was so good. I managed to like I I was I think I was tabled on about turn four, and I was very disappointed that I had one command point left. That I wasn't oh, able wow. to spend. I thought you, I thought you were going to say you still had a stock you hadn't. <laughs> no, I went through them. <laughs> <laughs> How did you find that then? It was a lot of fun. Um, I mean, it wasn't super balanced, but I think I was actually surprised at how, you know, 
how the all the CP kind of kept me in the game. Um, and really, the the main thing that was sort of unbalanced was the fact that it was, you know, orcs against new Codex Space Wolves rather than the fact that he had all the upgrades. That's interesting, yeah. So you actually found the whole 9-fed versus 8-fed Codex to be more of a disparity than additional 26 yeah. command... Well, not 26, additional, like, 14 command points or whatever due to yeah. the Crusade. Yeah, um, the, the command points... Know, did quite a lot to make up for the difference in crusade level that's, that's actually good to see then because i've obviously i've not previous to this heard of such an extreme example of the <laughs> no crusade. neither have i um but it sounds like it you know possibly did the job of what it was intended to do yeah because when you've got that many cps you can kind of just do whatever you like <laughs> with any of the <laughs> stratagems you just throw them around whatever yeah. Every time you're targeting a vehicle or monster, you're using yep. uh, old hunters or whatever it is for snake bites. Yeah, I was. Um, I think I used ramming speed uh, oh, yeah. three or four every times. Time basically, yeah, every yeah. turn you're charging a ramming yeah. speed of something. It's like, oh, truck charging. A, I was truck charging the Invicta warsuit to eat the Overwatch. Ramming speed. <laughs> Take some mortal wounds. Why not? Take some mortal wounds. Uh, yeah, I can good. see that, yeah. Uh, I, get, I think there's plenty of shenanigans in the Orc Codex in particular to just use stratagem after stratagem after stratagem. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's uh, really good to hear then. So perhaps that is encouraging then for the implications of Crusade in our spotlight topic. So well, I think quite. we'll jump over to that now. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we are back once again. Now, we're back with our main topic for tonight, which is the first of the new Flashpoint series in White Dwarf. So this is Flashpoint Argavon. And, well, first of all, it's probably worth explaining what exactly these Flashpoints are. So if you are not aware, there are a series of linked articles over recent issues of White Dwarf. Now... What they essentially are is a collection of new rules, or additional rules rather, for 40k 9th edition. The nature of what these rules are may vary from Flashpoint to Flashpoint, because they're intending to produce these as multiple series over time. And the first one has taken the form of a series of campaign rules, so sort of like a a self-contained three-month campaign system to be used with kind of any rule set of 40k. Um, And from a narrative perspective, each of these flashpoints is meant to be representing a particular location or period in time in the narrative of the universe. So the Argavon campaign is meant to be set within the Prior Nexus, 
and basically during the Indomitus Crusade. So right. it's primarily all based around this narrative of Imperial forces engaging with Necron forces and a couple of various other Xenos factions getting involved. Um, whereas in the most recent issue of White Dwarf, they've actually just released the first of the second Flashpoint series, and that one is based in, um, I think it's the Chicharadon system, and it's basically meant to be running alongside the upcoming Metallica campaign. So that's all going to be based around like Admech and Knights and Death Guard and so on and everything going on in sort of like the Plague Purge story arc. So you can sort of see what they're going for with these. Um, it's almost kind of like Vigilous Light is one way I thought about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's not clear if every single one is going to be like a set of campaign rules or if some of them are going to be more tailored to certain factions than others. So I say it's meant to be sort of Imperial versus Necron, but in this case, that's honestly more just the narrative of it as opposed to the mechanics. There's not much really that restricts it in those terms. So throughout this sort of explanation and these articles, they often refer to Xenotech, but it's just worth bearing in mind that from a narrative perspective, it's more or less all referring to Necron technology as opposed to say like Eldar tech or Tau tech. Right. Um, yeah. So the reason why it was split over three issues, as far as I can tell, is to coincide with the fact that this system is designed to run over like three phases. And if you were meant to be running the campaign when the issues originally came out, you could have done it month by month as each issue came. Personally, I kind of like having all three of them now to see the big picture rather than having started phase one, not knowing how phase two and three will play out in two months' time. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a sort of... Um, if you're planning to run the campaign, you probably want mm -hmm. to see the whole thing before you start. So it's funny that you say that because uh, something that they actually include in the uh, the first sort of supplement for this for this um flashpoint is they talk about having a campaign master used as an actual like term as someone who you know runs and organizes and tracks the progression of the campaign which while it's something that i think probably feels quite natural you might just not even think about it but do it anyway. It's interesting to see them actually coin it as a term and really sort of emphasize that this is intended to be run by like a game master sort of scenario. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's kind of very similar to the like arbitrator system that they use in Necromunda, where everything is meant to be overseen by this um, particular player uh, who's organizing it all just to make sure that things run smoothly and that things are being played sort of like to the intent or the um, spirit of the, the rule set. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. This um, kind of games workshop handing over. Uh, yeah, I mean, they always say, do what you want, but explicitly saying, you know, if you're taking control of the campaign, you have uh, certain abilities to, to do kind of, influence it how you want 
So, for example, one of the first ways they sort of show this intent is through the alliance system. So, these campaign rules allow for more or less any number of players. So, it could be between a couple of friends, it could be a gaming club. It's quite versatile because what matters is how many of these sort of like grand alliances there are and which players fall under which. And this is the sort of thing that will be organised by the campaign manager in collaboration with the players. So you can have any number of these alliances, although the system rules advise um, 2 to 10 players will be 2 alliances, 11 to 15 would be 3 alliances, 16 plus is 4. Now, they don't have to have any pre-prescribed reasoning for the races or factions involved. But you could imagine, depending on the scenarios and the players involved, you could have things like the Imperial Alliance, Chaos Alliance, and Xenos. Or you could have something as simple as Order and Disorder, because you might find that in any given system, like if this is in the prior Nexus, there could be an argument made for Necrons being part of the forces of Order. Yeah. If, their fight, if the forces of Disorder consist of Chaos or... Tyranid Hive Fleets or whatever. Or you could even have an alliance that's, say, for a campaign system all based around the Chaos Gods fighting. So if you're all Chaos Forces, you could have an, uh, four alliances, which are Korn, Zinch, Nurgle, and Zanesh, <laughs> if it works out with your player base. I mean, that sounds pretty fun. It does, doesn't it? I mean, so like the key thing is that they recommend having as roughly as equal number of players in each alliance as possible, but ultimately the campaign manager can kind of dictate, well not dictate, but can kind of suggest who goes where and can twist the narrative to suit the alliances as need be. Um, you know, I mean, it says here we recommend we recommend players come up with their own narrative hooks and motivations behind their alliances. In the direst of circumstances, even the most hated of foes can become allies for a time. Yep. And then it also um, sort of asks, it asks the players to outline what kind of method of gameplay they're looking to play. So are they looking to play open play, matched play, crusade? Just having these sort of things... Um, nailed down at the beginning of the campaign lets everybody know what they're getting into how they're all going to sort of play it together and hopefully how they're going to come to a cohesive enjoyable experience and it's funny how all that is very much arbitrated by this campaign manager um, and I think it's just a really interesting forward from Games Workshop to sort of have that much consideration to this rather than just going here's your rules for matchups go have yeah. fun yes um it's quite uh quite interesting that it suggests that you kind of talk it through with the players if you're the the man at the the campaign master um rather than just this is how it is um mm. i i seem to remember in in you know previous attempts at kind of campaign rules and stuff they pretty much said you decide xyz rather than you know it's a, it's a subtle kind of change to talk to your players uh it puts me in mind of uh, you know running a D campaign or something uh yeah i mean it's worth knowing that they 
they outline on the next stage that any player can play any other player, even from amongst... Um, they could play a game against someone from the same alliance. It's just that only games played between players from rival alliances contribute towards the results of the campaign. Okay. So if, you know, if you're committing to a three-month campaign at your gaming club, say all the Space Marine players are in one faction, it doesn't mean that for the next three months you're never going to be able to play a game against a Space Marine player at your club. Like, if you want yeah. to play a game with a particular friend and their army, you can do. It's not stopping you doing it you know, that week or whatever. It's just that your results won't contribute towards the campaign results. Yeah. You'd still be able to play with your force in its current iteration, its current state, so you're not just creating a vanilla version of your campaign army. You're still using it as it is. It's just that it's only going to contribute if you're playing against, you know, enemies of the Imperium. Yeah. And if you're playing um, Crusade, you'll still be picking up experience points and stuff. Yes, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, like the experiences for your own battle scars and accommodations and so on would still advance. It's just the campaign results wouldn't. Hmm. So that's actually, yeah, that's a good point. So the way it's run is, uh, so I mentioned it runs over three phases with the intention that each phase lasts one month. So you can imagine if you're playing a gaming club and you play once a week, you're roughly about, you know, maybe four yeah. to six games per phase, per player-ish. Um, but it's really clever how they score it. So at the end of every individual game, players will earn a, a number of war zone points based on a couple of conditions. Um, most of... They'll always be based on the outcome of the match, so, you know, win-loss draw. Um, but some of the missions themselves also might dictate that a player earns an additional war zone point for their faction if a certain objective was achieved. Um, for example, I think there's ones where it's like slaying the enemy warlord with your warlord um, or holding the key objective with your warlord uh, rewards an extra war zone point at the end of the mission. Um, so you always get one war zone point for a loss. Um, you'll get between one to four for a draw and between two to five for a win. And that is scaled based on the scale of the game. So this thing that they've introduced in ninth edition where there are delineated rules right. for the different scales of game. So if you win a combat patrol game, you'll earn two war zone points for your faction. Whereas if you won an onslaught game, so it's like three K plus, you'd earn five Warzone points for mm -hmm. your faction. That's yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's interesting that the scale of the conflict has a greater weight on the outcome of the war, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Here's here's a thought, and I, I don't know if you will cover this later. Um, but you could oh, yeah, have that, uh, Danny's actually hearing all this for the first time I've read all this and I'm aware <laughs> of how it all works Danny's actually going into this blind and is um, learning it all and hearing about it for the first time just as you are doing so it's interesting to get Dan's take on this Sean. giving away our secrets yeah, we're a little peek behind the curtain but <laughs> in this case so... you're peeking behind the curtain as well because you don't have any idea either <laughs> mm. yeah so um I don't know if there's any rules in this for playing with 
uh, like teams, uh, more than one player aside. But you could easily have uh, two people with a you know fifty power level crusade force joining forces to create a hundred power level force to play in a, a a larger scale game to earn more points. You're right in that you could do that. There isn't anything specified in here for that. It's just uh, whatever the scale of the game is. Yeah. Um, dictates how many warzone points they're up to win. However, you however you get to that scale of game, I guess is entirely up to you. I don't see there being a problem for many scenarios being ad- adopted for multiplayer play in that way. Um, I mean, the fact that an onslaught game could be you know three k and up, you could play with two players per side and have a six k apocalypse game. It's still worth the same. <laughs> but like you say, you could you know have two people play with combat patrols to play an incursion game yeah. or strike force or whatever I mean, the equivalent is. That, that's good because you're rewarded for playing bigger games rather than uh, like just playing lots of little games. Yes, and I mean, one of the things that's worth considering is it as this isn't one of its primary uses is to be played alongside Crusade, you can imagine that as the campaign phases progress, the forces you're using will get bigger. Yeah. So the overall war zone points earned each phase is probably going to increase from phase to phase. You'd, you'd assume so. Yes. Um, what's quite clever about it all, though, is that at the end of each phase, the campaign master tallies up the total number of war zone points earned by each alliance. And the alliance that has the, to- the highest total number of war zone points at the end is considered to be the victor of that phase. And then all the war zone points are reset for the next phase, so everyone goes back to zero. Okay. So it has kind of like a bit of um, a speed bump built in to prevent one faction from running away yeah. with it too quickly because after that first month, all the factions get set back to zero um, war zone points. Yeah, and ultimately, what you're actually trying to compete for is um, strategic points, which these are awarded at the end of the phase to the victorious alliance in that phase. So, if your alliance wins campaign phase one or two, you're awarded one strategic point. If your alliance wins phase three, they're awarded two strategic points. Mm. And the end of phase three, whichever alliance has the most strategic points, is deemed the overall winner of the campaign. Interesting. Which is really interesting because it actually keeps everyone in the race right up until yeah. the end. Because if you've got if you've got just two alliances, say just order versus disorder, you could have one faction that wins the first two phases, but if the other faction wins phase three, you actually tie on strategic points and then you have to play like a tiebreaker game, which, yeah. you know, that would be a fun six to 10k, a big apocalypse game with <laughs> every player from both alliances. Yeah, that'd be cool. Big game and the outcome of the game being dependent on that game, the, the outcome of the campaign being dependent on that game. But then equally, if you've got three alliances, you could have. Um, 
you could have one alliance win phase one and phase two, um, and the sec- the other two alliances still have a chance of tying with them if yeah. they win the third phase. Yeah. Um, or if alliance A and B win phases one and two, alliance three could still win phase three and actually win the campaign. Yeah. Because they'd have two strategic points to each of the other factions one. So it's quite a simple but elegant system actually for determining the overall campaign victor. Yeah. And at its at its base level, that's kind of it for determining victory in the campaign. Every game played earns your team, your faction, your alliance, whatever you want to call it, a number of warzone points. At the end of every phase, the alliance with the most warzone points wins that phase and gets some strategic points. After all three phases are played, whichever alliance had the most strategic points wins the campaign. Everything else is all minutiae of that phase of the campaign. It's uh, all the extra rules for playing with um, unique agendas and theatres of war and missions, but it's very much base level. That's your three-month campaign system. Okay. Simple enough so far. Yeah. So then we'll delve into phase one of the Agabon campaign. Now, phase one runs for more or less your first month. Um, and it's actually worth pointing out because I realize we haven't mentioned it yet, but actually the free issues in question of White Dwarf, if you would like to go get these rules for yourself, are issues 457, 458, 459, respectively. And we're sort of going to jump around a little bit from each one as we're discussing the different components, but it all sort of piles up together to create this campaign system. And phase one is everything that's primarily from issue 457. So there aren't any additional campaign rules in phase one. You're just playing games, winning them to earn your war zone points. Okay. Players, however, are encouraged to play those games using the Argavon Theatres of War and the Crusade Agendas. So we might as well just give them a brief little rundown now since there isn't much else to talk about in Phase 1. Go for it. So in issue 457, there are a couple of these Theatres of War that are unique to the Argavon system. And the two that I want to talk about are the... Argavon Fault Line Zone and the Kishira Mountain Valley. Okay. Alright, so let's start with the Fault Zone. So, it is a desperate commander indeed who seeks to pass the Argavon Fault Zone, for it is a place in constant turmoil, rife with tectonic activity that has racked its battlefields for millennia. The rumbling ground can crack and split without warning, rendering great chasms that can swallow battle formations whole. So you're basically talking about having a battle in the middle of an earthquake. Mm, and uh, the, ground, the ground can just be erupting around you. So, if you're using this battle zone, um, you use some fracture tokens. So this theatre of war uses fracture tokens to represent weak points in the earth caused by the local 
populace's mining activities. Over the course of the game, fault lines will open up between these fractured tokens, endangering those lying along their path. Before the battle, after the battlefield has been created, the players roll off, starting with the winner. Players alternate placing fracture tokens on the battlefield until each has placed three tokens. So you end up with six of these tokens on the board. Right. Each fracture token must be placed more than nine inches away from any other token, and each player assigns the numbers one to three to the fracture tokens that they placed. Makes sense so far. At the start of each battle round, the players must determine which, if any, fault lines have opened up on the Argavon surface. The number of fault lines that open at the start of that battle round is based on the round number as shown in the table below. So in battle round one, there will be no fissures. In battle rounds two and three, there will be one new fissure that um, breaks open in a fault line. And in battle round four and onwards, there will be two more fault lines breaking open mm-hmm. every round. When a fault line opens, each player rolls a d3 to determine one of the fracture tokens that they placed at the start of the battle. The fault line opens up, the fault line that opens up then runs between those two points. So we both roll our d3, and if I get one and you get three, there's a fault line between the first marker I placed and the third marker that you placed. <laughs> so I, I don't know the technical number of combinations off the top of my head, but you know, six different markers to a time. You can imagine that sort of like spider web network of potential fault lines. It's not like there's just two or three potentials. There's a yeah. you know That's nearly fair. probably a lot of options, a lot of potential places <laughs> appear. Yeah, and oh well, I mean, if if the players are placing them where they like at the start, then there's all sorts of uh, combinations now, of, of weird. Yeah, exactly. Lines you can draw across the table. I mean, you could end up with ones that just do a, a short little twelve-inch jump from across one corner, or you could have like a practically table-length forty-inch fault line from one corner to the other, almost. Uh, and once these fault lines open up, they remain open for the rest of the battle. So there is this fault line running along that line. So the battlefield is going to slowly get torn up more and more. <laughs> so when they open up. Uh, you draw a straight line from the centre of one of these fracture tokens to the centre of the other. Each unit, excluding titanic units, or units that can fly, that lie beneath this line, uh, fall foul of the fault line and become affected by it. If a titanic unit lies beneath this line, roll a d6 and a 4+, plus, it also falls foul of the fault line and becomes affected by it. Titanic things being that big, yep. um, they won't necessarily be affected by a single crack in the ground. Each unit can only fall foul of a fault line once per battle. Each time a unit becomes affected by a fault line, roll on the tectonic table below to see what happens to it. So it's a d6 table, uh, the results between which can be this unit suffers 2d3 multiple wounds, <laughs> and until the end of the battle round, half the result of any advance or charge rolls. Or this unit suffers d3 multiple wounds, half the result of its advances and charge rolls. Um, or just half the movement uh, until the end of the battle round, half the movement characteristic of models in this unit um, or on a 5 to 6 until the end of the battle round, each time a model in this unit makes an attack subtract 1 from the attack's hit roll so basically if you're over a fault line when it opens up you've got a chance of suffering some mortal wounds as various members of your unit fall 
into the fault line in the earth. Uh, and you're going to have sort of some penalty to either movement or hit rolls for that turn whilst you're basically trying to pick yourself out of the collapsing ground around you. So you don't want that? No. So, fault lines remain open for the remainder of the battle. Each time a model in a unit, excluding Titanics or flying units, make an advance or charge move across an open fault line, roll a d6 on a 1, that unit suffers one mortal wounds. It basically becomes a kind of dangerous terrain to you nice. know, move quickly over open fault lines. Yeah. Um, and, and that's it for this first theatre of war, but I like the idea of not knowing where the earth is going to crack as you play, and at the same time, it's not just a one one hit, you know, one and done. The battlefield as a whole is going to be slowly getting more and more hazardous and just cracking open in more of these fissures as the game goes on. Yeah, that appeals to me. The, uh, yeah, the radical really cool. nature of destruction on that battlefield. I also think this is one of those ones that's really easy to implement because all you need is some tokens. Yeah. Like six token markers, that's it. So you don't need fancy, unique terrain pieces. You don't need to have unusual board setups or realm of battle tiles or anything like that. Just I mean, you'd markers and you can use this in any game of 40k. You'd probably want some like thread or something. Yeah, I think some to mark them out because otherwise that's going to get really confusing. But other than that, I think it's a a nice, straightforward, and very interesting theater of war. Mm-hmm. And then the second one I wanted to give a mention was the Hishira Mountain Valley. So this is an inhospitable, no, an inhospitable place wreathed in blood-freezing fogs and assaulted by blizzards that can strip flesh from bone. Waging war in this locale is particularly dangerous, especially when a single grenade can trigger an avalanche and bury the battlefield in tons of snow, ice, and rock. Ugh. <laughs> I hate winter. Yeah. So, this one basically has two core rules to it. One, which is the Frozen Blizzard's weather table. So this is a D3 table where you apply that effect for the entirety of the game. So okay. if you were to use it battle zone it, you could get it slightly different three different times because the weather effect will be slightly different for each of those games. Cool. So it's actually got some replayability within this one theater of war. So these potential effects are deep powder. Each time a unit that cannot fly advances... No more than three inch can be added to the move characteristic of models in that unit. Have you ever tried to run through really deep snow? Uh, um, yes. Uh, and Is it hard? Yes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So you can't ever advance more than three inches. Fair. Um, or you could have frozen fog. Units that are more than 24 inches away cannot be seen and cannot be targeted by any attacks. That, that so, also checks out. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever been in an ice shard blizzard? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> Neither have I, so we'll, we'll have to take a white dwarf at its word for this one. Each time a vehicle model starts or ends a move within six inches of a terrain feature, roll 1d6, adding one to the roll if that model can fly. On a 5 or a 6, that model's unit suffers one mortal wound. On a 7 plus because if it's a flying unit, yep. that model's unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. 
because you, you're trying to maneuver in this blizzard, and if you're yeah. a vehicle or in particular something that flies, you're not going to be you're going to be very exposed to the elements. Yeah, yeah. But that that's not even the fun part about this fierce reward. That's just the weather. Go that's on. Just the fact you're fighting in a nice tundra. Now the real fun rule, which is the one that applies to all instances of using the spirit of war, is the avalanche risk. <laughs> With frequent heavy snowfall, this spirit of war is at constant risk of avalanches. Over the course of the game, each time any models fire particularly devastating or loud ranged weapons, there is a chance that they will cause an avalanche. In the shooting phase, in the shooting phase, each time a model makes an attack with either a blast weapon, a weapon with a blast ability, or makes an attack that inflicts four or more damage to its target, make a note of the table quarter that the attacking model was within. So not the target, right? The firing the weapon, because you quite often find that yeah. you know the target will be in a different table quarter. To you. If the attacking model is within one or more table quarters, both players roll off. The winner selects which table quarter it's considered to be in. At the end of each battle round, roll 1d6 for the table quarter that has the biggest tally. If there is a tie, then roll for each of the table quarters. <laughs> so whichever table quarter made the most noise, nice. roll for it. Add the current battle round to the roll. On a six plus, each unit in that table quarter, each unit in a table quarter suffers D3 mortal wounds. Note that the same table quarter can be hit by multiple avalanches <laughs> over the course of the battle. Oof. Yeah, that could be brutal. See, what I really think is funny about this is the idea of players trying to separate out their forces in order to avoid having a single table quarter where they're making too much noise with their big guns. Can you imagine, like, if you have a unit full of blast weapons and you sneak it into your opponent's table corner and fire them all just to try and drop the avalanche down on their army? Yeah, exactly. Like, um, imagine running... Like I say, I don't know. Um, bringing oh, it's not. Yeah, grenades have blast, don't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you could you imagine just like running lots of squads of like infantry over and just chucking grenades with every single yeah. squad? So you're like, right, that's five squads that are throwing grenades this time in order to try and cause an avalanche in a certain territory. That that would be a fun use for some uh, squads and guardsmen. Sorry, was it uh, you get? Is it one to the tally for every unit that fires one of those weapons, or is it one for every weapon that's fired? No, right. Sorry, yeah, you're right. It's each time a model makes an attack. So you blast. So there's quite a few stratagems that, for example, (laughs) let you throw ten grenades in a unit or whatever. That'd be funny. Here's my fifty point squad of guardsmen. They're going to run up and use grenadiers. Right, that's ten added to the tally for uh, avalanche (laughs) in the sector of the board. Yep. That's uh, there's a lot of fun to be had there, I think. <laughs> yeah, there is. See, and that I think is another brilliant example of a theatre of war that does not need much to work. It's a D three table rolled at the start of the game, and then just keeping a tally for your avalanche. Yeah, and I think that could be really fun because definitely. Well, uh, battle round one, you've got 
uh, a one in three chance of an avalanche occurring. But from battle round two onwards, it's a 50-50 chance that only increases battle round after battle round. Oof. In fact, thinking about it, it's guaranteed there'll be at least an avalanche in turn five, even <laughs> if you roll the one on the D6. That's cool. That's the time to throw all your grenades. <laughs> yes, it is. Right, so those are two of the highlighted um, theatres of war. Um, and then the extra thing is the Argavon agendas is also a thing available in campaign phase one and onward if you're playing in Crusade. And basically there's one generic agenda and then there's a couple that are faction specific which I thought was really interesting to see in the White Dwarf publication. Hmm. Such as you'll be interested to know Dan that there is a Adeptus Mechanicus agenda in here. Okay. And also worth knowing that I think most of these um, could be applicable to non-Argavon Crusade games if you wanted, because most of them basically reward XP to the unit achieving the objective, uh, achieving the agenda, and right. if you achieve it, you also get extra wars at a point. So if it's a non-Argavon game, it's just another way of gaining XP. Okay. So first up, we have Scavengers, which is the generic agenda. Um, at the end of the battle, for each objective marker you control, select one unit from your army within range of that objective marker. That unit gains one experience point. If you control more objective markers than your opponent does, and your warlord is within range of an objective marker that is wholly within your opponent's deployment zone, you gain one additional war zone point. Okay. So that's an agenda available to anyone, any faction, um, in any phase of the, the campaign, and it's a way of being able to try and achieve additional war zone points in order to win that phase for your faction. Yeah. And then there's a couple of examples for some faction-specific agendas. So there's an Astra Militarum one, Adaptus Sororitas one, the Adaptus Mechanicus one is Forbidden Xenotech. Hmm. You can only select this agenda if your Warlord has the Adaptus Mechanicus keyword. If you select this agenda, then after both sides have finished deploying, your opponent must set up one objective marker anywhere on the battlefield that is not within their own deployment zone. This objective marker represents the Forbidden Xenotech, but does mm -hmm. not count as an objective marker for any rules purposes other than this agenda. At the end of the battle, if that objective marker is controlled by Adeptus Mechanicus units from your army, each Adeptus Mechanicus unit from your army within range of that objective marker gains two experience points. Ooh. If your Warlord is in range of the objective marker, you gain one additional Warzone point. I like it. Go get the Necron tech so that we can examine it and definitely not at all commit any tech heresy. Oh, we'll just destroy it. Honest. You'll never see it again, put it that way. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's that. That's really cool. There's um, Knightly Rivalry, which is... You can only select this agenda if your warlord has the Imperial Knights keyword. Before the battle, select one enemy unit. At the end of the battle, if that unit was destroyed by an Imperial Knight unit from your army, that Imperial Knight gains a number of experience points equal to the uh, table below, which basically you get either one, three, or four experience points, depending on if the unit's power rating 
was 1 to 10, 11 to 16, or 17 plus. Right. The okay. bigger thing you kill, the more yeah. experience you get. Makes sense. If that unit was destroyed by a melee attack made by your warlord, who was <laughs> an Imperial Knight in this situation, you gain one additional warzone point. Nice. So you can sort of see how that goes. And then there's um there's another agenda for Gene Stealer cults, one for Necrons and one for Deathwatch. Cool. Um, all of which are basically do this very, you know, narrative fluffy thing for your army, gain some XP, and or if you did it with your warlord, you also get a warzone point. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I like that. But like I say, I think it's interesting that these could just be applied to kind of any crusade game, really. It's yeah. just that you forego the warzone point. It's a, a new way to acquire XP for your various forces. Yeah, at least I, until you get a codex. I do like the um, get points for agendas to like win the campaign because you could conceivably lose the game but still pick up a fair few if you you know focus on doing these instead of playing the actual game. Yes, in theory, if you had a draw but you achieved your campaign agenda and your opponent didn't, you will actually come out of that game with more warzone points. Yeah. I mean that's one of the things that we've uh, talked about previously about Crusade that even when the game is lost it's still worth fighting it out because you can get some more experience points and this is another sort of another way of doing that you get something right the battle is lost but the fight continues sort of thing and like there is reason for doing so and I think that is a really good upside to Crusade I think I know when we last played a game in person, uh, the most enjoyable part of that was actually once the winning the game was completely out of sight for me, but I was able to do some hilarious yes. stuff in my scrap jet. And it was worth doing, other than and just it was the worth doing, yeah. It, yeah. Got, got a bunch of XP and ended up pretty much yeah. being MVP of the game, even though we only showed up after we'd lost. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry I'm late. Watch this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of all the gist for phase one, which is, you know, um, here's your campaign rules, here's how you earn points to win the phases, go off and play some games with these agendas to try and earn some extra war zone points, and you're highly encouraged to use a couple of the theatres of war to represent the battles taking place on Argavon. Now... Both of those remain valid for Phase 2 and Phase 3. So everything okay. else we're about to discuss, you can also bear in mind that these games could still be played with these agendas and can still be played using the Argavon Theatres of War. Nice. So that means we're done with Issue 1 in this series. We're now on to the second, which is Issue 458. So this is for Phase 2 of the campaign and basically this adds the xenotech section to the campaign okay so each time you fight a battle during campaign phase two of the agavon campaign you can accumulate you can accumulate xenotech points xenotech points are added to your total at the end of the battle unless a voice stated each time you gain any xenotech points record the total gained at the end of each battle in Phase 2, when reporting the number of Warzone points gained, each player must also report their current Xenotech points total to the Campaign Master. These points will be used in Phase 3 of the campaign. Xenotech points are gained for the following. 
If you win a battle, you get three points. If you draw a battle, you get two. If you lose a battle, you get one. This is regardless of scale of battle. Okay. If the enemy warlord is destroyed during the battle by a melee attack made by a model from your army, gain one Xenotech point at the end of that phase. I believe the intention being that you kill the alien and you take his tech. Hmm. Or, or kill the um, the uh, the Imperium guy and take the stuff he stole off you in the first place. Yeah, and take it back. <laughs> Reclaim your dynasty. Yep. Or the final option is selecting the Search for Xenotech Crusade agenda below. So you now get in Phase 2 another generic agenda that anyone can take. Which is... Infantry and biker units from your army can attempt the following action as described in the Warhammer 40,000 Core rulebook. Search for Xenotech. At the end of your movement phase, one unit from your army that is in three inches of an area terrain feature can start to perform this action. This action is completed at the start of your next command phase. If completed, gain one Xenotech point. Fair enough. So basically, one unit per turn can start just physically searching the battlefield for any Xenotech that is suspected to be there is probably the reason why the armies are fighting over that area. Okay. Right. So what's interesting about this is that this is a recorded tally that stays with your army throughout the phase. It's not like... Uh, I mean, I guess it's kind of true was on points anyway, but this is like specific to you. It's not just a matter of knowing how many points you've contributed to the faction. You know that your force currently has 10 Xenotech points, for example. Right. That, that is because the second part of this is the risking Xenotech. So if your army is battleforged, during each battle in campaign phase two, you can spend Xenotech points from your total in conjunction with command points to use the stratagems over the page. So basically... There are one, two, three, there's four new stratagems that you have access to. But in addition to paying a single command point, you will also pay a Xenotech point hmm. from your pool to use a stratagem in a game, which means you can use, say, the, if you come into a game with 10 Xenotech, you could expend three of it in a critical game to use these stratagems. Or if it's a game that you don't need it, maybe you hold on to it more. And you just accumulate more for a future game. Quick, quick point of note: uh, mm -hmm. when you when you kill the enemy warlord and you pick a Xenotech point, mm -hmm. do you get that immediately? Can you then spend that immediately on a stratagem in the same game? I believe quite probably. So, so, so obviously, uh, game one Xenotech point at the end of that phase. <laughs> and in the case of the agenda, uh, this is completed at the start of your next phase. If completed, gain one Xenotech point. Yeah. Uh, I would say so. So, so you, yes. you could splurge them in the game you earn them. Uh, quite possibly, yes. That's, that's quite amusing. <laughs> and, uh, and they all do a bunch of fun things. So I'll just quickly run through them because there is only four. Yep. They all cost one CP and they all cost one Xenotech point. Okay. So you've got Field Projector. Use a stratagem at the start of your opponent's shooting phase. Spend one Xenotech point and select one unit from your army. Until the end of the phase, that unit is treated as having the benefits of light cover. Okay, that's cool. Cool. Personal 
Revitalizer. Use a stratagem at the start of any battle round. Spend a Xenotech point. Select one character, excluding vehicles, from your army. Until the end of that battle round, each time a character model would lose a wound, roll a d6. On a 6, that model is not wound. They're lost. So a 6 will feel no pain for a battle round. Okay. Could be handy. I mean, yeah, for one CP and one Xenotech, 6 up uh, feel no pain for the round as well. It's not for like your player turn, it's the whole battle round. Fair. Signal Disruptor. Um, basically... You select a unit from your army, and enemy units cannot deep strike within 12 inches of it. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's so, yeah. Scramblers, more or less. And Matter Transmorgifier, which is basically smite the enemy. You know, use Xenotech in a um, violent manner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just throw it out. Your shooting phase, spend a Xenotech point, select an enemy unit that is within 6 inches of a unit from your army. Roll eight. Roll six d six. For each result of a four plus, the enemy unit suffers one muscle wound. Ooh. So yeah, discharge your Xenotech in some sort of like destructive it. capacity. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's that's kind of what you get out of Xenotech. So you acquire points of it throughout phase two of the campaign, and you can spend them in conjunction with CP to use these four um, unique stratagems. Okay. However, it does have an effect at the start of phase three, which we will move on to now. Okay. So we're now on to issue 459 of White Dwarf, stage three of the Agavon campaign. So this is where the sort of real hierarchy and the jostling of the alliances comes back in. Right. So at the start of phase three of the Agavon campaign, the campaign master collates all the remaining Xenotech points for the players in each alliance. So all the Xenotech points between everyone in that alliance all pulled together. Okay. At this point, no more Xenotech points can be collected. <gasps> each alliance receives a title throughout phase three of the Agavon campaign, depending on the relevant amount of Xenotech they have collected. It basically equates to a tier system of who had the most, who had the next most, who had the least, and so on. Yeah. Um, which equates to being known as Xenotech hoarders, preservers, collectors, and scavengers, respectively. Fair enough. Now, each alliance can now select one Xenotech reward from those listed below, each of which is a unique stratagem. If an alliance selects a Xenotech reward, all players in that alliance gain access to the associated stratagem and can spend command points to use it during any battle in phase three of the campaign. Each Xenotech reward is unique and once selected by an alliance cannot be selected by another alliance. And basically the alliance that got the most Xenotech gets to pick first, the one that had the second most gets to pick second and so on. So if you got the most, you get first pick of these um, stratagems that then okay. are available to your team and your team only. Hmm. Um, now, I believe it doesn't technically say at this point that um, you lose your Xenotech points, although it, 
the only thing they would be of use for after this point would be spending on those stratagems we just talked about, but they do specify they're only available in phase two. Personally, I don't see a reason why you couldn't also allow those to be available because you're no longer gaining Xenotex. You would have a finite pool now. Right. So those stratagems are different from the ones that you pick up for those rewards. Yes. So these reward ones are a one, two, okay, three, four, five, six of them, which is interesting because you're probably not going to have more than three or four alliances. So there's always going to be some options, even for the ones who pick last. Yes. And I'll just run through them now because they are all quite um, interesting. That's the first one. So remember, every ally, every alliance has probably got one that they're trying to go for and hoping that the other alliances don't pick it first. <laughs> so you got to think, yeah. if, and if you pick it, you're also denying it to the others. So it's uh, an interesting decision to be made by the alliances. So the first one is orbital targeting for 2 CP. Use the stratagem in your command phase, select one enemy unit. Until the start of your next command phase, each time a model from your army makes a ranged attack against that enemy unit, add one to the attack's hit roll. Ooh. So 2ZP, mark an enemy unit, plus one to hit with everything at ranged against it. These sound tasty. They are all tasty. Okay. The second one, incandescent blasts. Free CP. Use this charge in your command phase. Select one battlefield quarter, a whole quarter. Okay. Roll 1d6 for each unit that is within that battlefield quarter, adding one to the result if the target has the Titanic keyword or if it contains 11 or more models. On a 6 plus, that unit suffers d3 mortal wounds. You can only use a stratagem once. Okay. So. A big orbital bombardment, yep. essentially. Uh, shield hopes two CP. Use a stratagem in your command phase. Select one unit from your army until the start of your next command phase. While that unit is wholly within your own deployment zone, it gains a four plus invuln against ranged attacks. Okay. Yes, that's good. Really good at defending and staying alive. Um, 2 CB matter converter use a stratagem in the reinforcement step of your movement phase select one infantry unit from your army remove it from the battlefield and set it up uh, anywhere on the battlefield that is more than 9 inches away from any enemy models you can only use this stratagem once per battle so a 2 CP teleport nice so whereas like some armies like orcs have the jump or necrons yep. who have the veil of darkness suddenly being able to give that to say like Astra Militarum or Imperial well, maybe not Imperial Knights, I was about to say with infantry only, but you know just, I don't know, chaos you know, just being able to teleport a unit of possessed or something Yep there's, uh, there's, that's, that's a good thing to have mm -hmm. And then uh, 2CP Chrono Field Emitter use a stratagem at the start of the fight phase, select one enemy unit that is within engagement range of a character model from your army that enemy unit fights last this phase. Oh, that's a good one. That's really good because you can use that every fight phase and it <laughs> can be from a different one of your characters if you want each time. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, quite flexible. It is. So like we know how um, like the new 
Space Marine Executioner guy is good. We know how the Foul Blight Spawn is good for Death Guard. Like having this ability to force an enemy to fight last is really good, but it's it's still located on one body, so your opponent at least knows where that ability is going to be coming from each turn. This two CP a time to give it to any character that you've got anywhere on the board. That's real good. Yep. And then the last one is the unstable power core for one CP. Use a stratagem in your shooting phase. Select one enemy unit within six inches of a character model from your army and roll 1d6. On a two to five, the enemy unit suffers one mortal wound. On a six, the enemy unit suffers d3 mortal wounds. So a fancy grenade slash mini smite. But it's only one yeah. CP at a time, and you can do it every turn if you want to. Fair and again, enough. from any character model in your army each time. Yeah. I mean, they're all quite tasty, aren't yeah, they? they? They all sound pretty good. But uh, I could definitely see how, depending on who you've got in your faction, some of them might be more impressive than others. Yes, I think, for example, Tau players are probably going to be more yes. interested in the orbital targeting than they are in the Chrono. Field, I, I feel like in most situations, that's probably going to be the one that gets picked first. Which one? The... Um... The, the plus one to hit. Targeting. That's that's uh, certain yeah, armies are going to benefit a lot from that. I say, but like, say if you're part of an Imperial Alliance, and yeah, sure, maybe the Imperial Guard player really hopes that the Alliance picks that one, but maybe the Space Wolf or the Blood Angel player <laughs> is not as interested as getting the plus one to hit at range. No, maybe not. There could be some debate between alliances as to which one they take, and I think that's a real interesting cooperative decision making process yeah uh, between the alliance and i think that would make for a really good game night where like one representative from every alliance is there at least and they've had discussions maybe in like a group chat beforehand what like their top four picks are in what yeah. order you know um and everyone's all like reveals their hand on that game night to see which alliance gets which like top tier stratagem to use for this phase three yeah that could be that could be a fun little uh, sort of mini game. Yeah. Um, and then there are a couple of new Crusade relics in here, um, and these only become accessible in phase three of the campaign because they're tied to um, what tier of Xenotech Horder you are. Um, okay. Which is only determined in phase three, but you, any character can um, pick a Crusade relic. Uh, from this Argavon list when they could normally pick a Crusade Relic, so long as it's part of um, a Xenotech tier they're allowed to access. Yeah. So, for example, the Xenotech Recycler is available to any tier. Um, so even like the Scavenger Alliance, whichever one came bottom of the pile, can still take this um, Relic. Once per turn, if the bearer is on the battlefield, when you use a Xenotech Reward Stratagem, so all those ones we just talked about, that stratagem costs zero CP. Ooh. So if you've got your free CP incandescent blasts orbital bombardment, because that's what <laughs> your alliance took, but you personally also have a Xenotech recycler um, uh, crusade relic, you could do your once per game incandescent blasts for zero CP. Nice. And to be fair, the uh, recycler is once per turn. So if you really wanted, 
you could use your chrono field emitter and every turn so long as that character with that relic is alive they could do the emitter stratagem for zero each turn that's uh yeah that's interesting it's it, i mean it's interesting because presumably it only works on those specific stratagems it does only work on those so your um if you if you're playing crusade and you pick up that relic that character is going to have limited use once you're not playing that campaign but um, then I also think it would probably be fine to say swap it out for another generic I mean, yeah. when you're not in the campaign. I mean, I suspect most people would probably make an like you know would consider retiring their crusade after a campaign like this anyway. Um, ah, well, you say that, but um, there is one other element that comes in with this at the very end, which is the crusade campaign commendation, which oh. we'll get to in a minute. But first, I just wanted to go over the. Um, the other um, relic on the top end of the scale. Okay. So this is the Pariah Crown, and this is only available to a model from the Xenotech Horde Alliance. So only if you were the alliance that got the most Xenotech. The top tier. The bearer has the following ability. Pariah Crown Aura. While an enemy Psyker character unit is in 18 inches, so an 18-inch bubble from a character, Okay. that is a big bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, each time a uh, a psychic test is taken for the enemy model, wrote. Oh no, sorry. Yeah, while an enemy psychic character unit is within eighteen inches of this model, each time a psychic test is taken for that model, roll one d six. If the result of that dice matches either of the values of the dice used as part of that psychic test, the enemy psychic unit suffers perils of the warp. A unit counts of a pearls of the warp twice in the same nice. case. Nice. So, yeah, the whole thing of a massive aura of, oh, well, did you roll for your psychic test there? A six and a three. If I roll this dice and it comes up as either a six or a three, you're suffering perils. Oof. So, what? I think roughly that means you've got about a one in three chance of forcing perils on yeah. any psyker every time they take a test within eighteen inches of you. Yeah, unless they roll doubles. Yeah. Oh yes, yes, and that's then it'd be one in six. But then, if they have rolled a double, they themselves have a one in three chance of having perils yeah, because if yeah. you rolled a double one or a double six, <laughs> quite. <laughs> so yeah, but like. You know, that's a pretty tasty relic. And that one is not tied exclusively to the campaign system. That one, it would mm. be of use outside of Agabon. That's true. But speaking of outside of Agabon, the sort of final thing that you get from all this, so after you've done your whole battling in the theatres of wars, scavenging for all your Xenotech, cashing them in for all your unique stratagems as an alliance, if at the end of phase three, your alliance has won enough of its war zone points to win enough phases to win enough strategic points to be deemed the campaign victor. Yep. You get the Crusade campaign commendation. Each player in the winning alliance can select one character unit from their order of battle that has the bloodied rank or higher. So basically someone who's actually had to have been fighting for a while, not just a brand new character you've added to your roster. Uh, we recommend that this should be a character unit that has performed admirably during your battles in the Agamon campaign. That character gains the following battle honour. As if any battle honour, make a note on the Crusade card and increase its Crusade point by one. 
They gained the Hero of the Argavon Campaign. This warrior has distinguished themselves in combat and been awarded an appropriate accommodation, whether it be a medal smelted from recovered Xenotech or an honorific title to recount their heroic actions. Once per battle, when an attack is made by this model, before making either a hit or wound roll for that attack, that hit or wound roll is automatically successful. Nice. So they're just they're that good, they're that much of a veteran now because they've, you know, been literally through the wars on Argavon and they're so adept now with the use of this uh, Xenotech, or they're just so used to encountering it, battling it. Once per game, you can just guarantee that a hit or a wound nice. automatically succeeds. Like, I like that's some fun potential. Like, yeah. being able to guarantee an Overwatch shot hits. Yeah. Being able to guarantee that your plucky captain with a power sword will roll that six to wound the Imperial Knight. Yep. You know, or, um, or guaranteeing you will hit with your combi rocket on your war boss. <laughs> Very true, yes. Just even with his one eye. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's I like true. That. So, um, that's that. That's kind of the entirety of the um, the Argavon campaign system. I say in a nutshell, but it's more accurately described as in three separate nutshells over yeah. three months. <laughs> nice, and that's without even really going into some of the missions in here, because each of these issues comes with a couple of unique. Um, in crusade missions, and they they are crusade ones because they include, say, like a unique agenda tied to them. Um, they some of them reward differences in um, uh, like requisition points and so on. Like there's one of them where if you win it, you get an additional free requisition instead of the usual one. Oh, handy. Yeah, but there's like um, there's some really cool ones in here. Some which I think will be a nice. Um, discussion for a future mission focus like there's one that um involves summoning like ice worms like you basically you're fighting in that ice tundra we were talking about earlier and rather than just trying to destroy the enemy um through your military strength of arms the attacker is actually basically disrupting nests of these like giant ice worms <laughs> and, and getting them to sort of break up through the glacier and through the ice and attack the enemy you know basically everyone indiscriminately, but with the intention of doing more damage to the enemy. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's really funny because it involves um, the objective markers are where the worms are going to emerge, but you have to try and control them to either make it happen or prevent it from happening. And they also move around the battlefield a little bit as the, <laughs> obviously the worms are getting closer. And then they just burst out of the ground and cause all sorts of harm. And then there's another one which is um, it's like a deforestation <laughs> mission where basically like one force is in like hiding out in the jungles conducting like guerrilla warfare and the other army has decided the only way to you know find them is to cut the forest down. As you do. 
Um, so that involves like objective marker is like the objectives are these deforestation machines um, and the attackers try to destroy the machines before they cut down um, the forest and the defender is trying to activate these machines to do exactly that and it includes rules to actually remove terrain from the board mid game because nice. the deforestation is in effect that's cool so there's some really cool stuff in here but mm. And what I think is just really cool about this is the fact that it's in White Dwarf. Yeah. Like, I mean, we've, we've talked there for basically a good hour discussing this campaign system, and it, it's got a lot of layers to it. It's got a lot of versatility to it and a lot of detail. Yeah, if I'm honest... And even a lot of wider it, applications. It's, it's a lot more... Like what you're describing is a lot more rules than I anticipated from, uh, from you know, stuff in a white dwarf. <laughs> right, like this sounds more like Pariah Nexus, not even two point This is like Pariah Nexus version three. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, um, it's it's a lot of stuff. It is, and I think it, it's especially good for anyone who wants to be running. A sort of a contained campaign for say like a, a gaming club or similar yeah because this can be as flexible to support anywhere between two to 20 players um and i think having been part of a couple in the past i think it would really would bring out a lot of nuance and story and narrative and just enjoyment for the players that they might not think a simple campaign system would achieve yeah, it's and, it sounds more um, kind of more practically designed than uh, some previous kind of Games Workshop campaign suggestions have been. Yes, and yet at the same time, it also has some quite bespoke stuff in there. Things like the whole focus in Phase Two onwards on Xenotech and this idea of. You know, the narrative of Argavon is that this, you know, Necron yeah. emergence is happening and everyone's trying to, you know, both save themselves or damn their enemies with this Xenotech. It's quite a narrative arc to take on what could otherwise be considered a rather generic campaign system, like a, a generic in yeah. a good way, you know, flexible. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that there'll be, like you say, there's going to be more of these articles in the future. So they're going to, you know, do different sort of themes, but I don't see any reason why you couldn't say just instead of Xenotech, it's like demonic rewards or something, and play a, you know, a, the the aforementioned four sides of chaos campaign. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I know that having already got the next issue that includes the first part of the next flashpoint. Yep. <laughs> which I find somewhat ridiculous considering the idea was these would be semi-regular series and literally as soon as one's finished, the next issue has to start <laughs> with the next one. Um, but I mean, you know, f fair on them if they're, you know, pointing out there, it's more stuff for people to play with. But the Flashpoint Charidon system, I know is based around fighting the Death Guard. So there's already a couple of mechanics involving viruses and contagion and you know, all that sort of aspect of it. Like there's um one of the missions in that includes unexploded Death Guard ordnance. 
and when you but they're all like biological warheads so when the players trigger the objective markers they detonate and but there's like a d6 table of what pathogens and effects that particular virus bomb had okay so you know that in itself is then quite a deep dive for a mission to you know that sort of like have a strong narrative theme to it like that um and yet it's going to be part of this wider flashpoint system so no doubt in maybe another you know another couple of months we'll be revisiting this with flashpoint charadon yeah um i think it's it's just really good to be a bit of a public service announcement to sort of make people aware that this is out there i know perhaps now you're talking four months down the line from when the first flashpoint um came out you might not be able to get hold of the paper copy of issue 457 anymore but i know you can definitely get digital copies this and you is can probably correct. get some paper copies on ebay I, I am actually literally right now looking at the warhammerdigital.com website uh, where you can purchase your white dwarves including the ones you've just mentioned uh for four pounds 99 each there you go so you get if you, you could almost look at it as a mini campaign supplement where if for you know 15 quid you gain this complete campaign system which is only marginally smaller i would say than beyond the veil it basically doesn't include 20 odd missions and it includes about five or six and added, as that. an added bonus you get three like halves of a white dwarf yeah you get three full issues of white dwarf as well i know personally i've not bought um white dwarf for many years up until about the last 12 to 18 months where i've picked up the occasional issue because it's included some rule set information i've been interested in i picked a couple up for necromunder articles and um arbitrary resources in those and the last three well now the last four months i've actually picked up white dwarf primarily because of these flashpoints and um i think it's definitely worth keeping an eye on if any particular one of them really takes your fancy and yeah i've also enjoyed just reading white dwarf again for the first time in years because i've had them <laughs> so since i've got them i've read them yeah i mean i i remember back in the old days when white dwarf was really good and then there was quite a long period of time where it was basically just an advert yeah but it seems they kind of also remember this transition yeah. but i would also say that i think it is back in the realms of being good yes it seems like they are they're kind of doing their best to bring it back to something more like how it used to be. Yeah, in fact, I have to say the the content in them is really good. It is now. I think it's as good as it was back in its heyday. Mm. The only criticism I have of it is that because a Games Workshop has such a vast catalogue of games now, it's actually kind of diluted the content from issue to issue. When sort of you're talking of maybe like say ten years ago, and a white dwarf would essentially have been split into like forty-five percent fantasy battle, forty-five percent forty k, and then like ten percent Lord of the Rings. Mm. Sort of like content. Now, if you go through this, everything is quite nicely catalogued, but they've essentially got um, sort of like contact and hobby stuff. So sort of like a, a community section, worlds of Warhammer. So that's like Age of Sigma stuff. 
um, a paint splatter section for Age of Sigma, Rules of Engagement for Age of Sigma, Army Showcase for Age of Sigma, then Flashpoint uh, for 40k, so like some rules content for 40k, um, Echoes from the Warp, 40k, Collecting, 40k, but then that's only about half the issue, and then you've got everything that is um there's a section for golden demon in here there's a section for um warhammer underworlds so diachasm there's a full battle report for blood bowl nice in fact i think in the in the last four months there's only i don't think any of these last four issues actually have a 40k battle report in them i think it's an age of sigma blood bowl an, uh, Warhammer Underworlds and possibly Aeronautica because there's an Aeronautica <laughs> section in here then a Necromunda rule set then a Black Library section with some you know um, unique um, stories in here I know they've done a fiction that's run through like three issues and it's like a, a long short story then there's Middle Earth and the uh, they haven't they Six months ago, they'd have had a section for Blackstone Fortress or Warhammer Quest. Um, there'll probably be more on that again with the new Warhammer Quest releasing in the next couple of months. Oh, um, aside, I'm excited for that. Yeah, <laughs> it does look good, doesn't it? The, yes. I mean, one of the things that put me, not put me off, but one of the reasons why I wasn't drawn into Age of Sigma when it re-released was because I was always a Vampire Counts player in right. Fantasy Battle. Yes. Now, for the longest time, the Soul Blight, as they're now known, have not really had representation. There's been all these other aspects of the, you know, Grand Alliance of Death, but the vampires haven't been there. And now it looks like they are in various yeah. forms, coming to Underworlds, coming to Warhammer Quest, and probably soon making their way to Age of Sigma. You'd think so, wouldn't you? You would. But yeah, so like the point I'm making is I think in like six months of issues, there's only one 40k battle report. Every issue is divided up into about 10 to 12 different topic areas based on each game system that they're currently supporting. So actually, even though I think every individual article and piece of content is really good, I'm finding I'm only reading about 20% of each issue because only 20% of it is relevant to me as a player. Fair enough. I mean, I think that's that's um, the nature of the beast, isn't it? With, it with is. I get it. I know why it is like that which is why I don't begrudge it. Yeah. But I would say that for me personally, because I don't play all of those game systems, and honestly, like I, I've always been a huge fan of Blood Bowl. I've played it tons in years past. Right now, I just don't have the time for Blood Bowl. So right. I'm not really giving it any time. So even though it's something I do play, I'm still not reading it because I haven't got the yeah. time to read about something I'm not playing. I mean, I guess the point is then that this is not a blanket you should buy White Dwarf. This is a, you should buy White Dwarf if it has things you want in it. Yes, I think that's a very good way of putting it. And I do think that's how I personally have found my, uh, my relationship with White Dwarf has developed over the last 12, 18 months. I think I now have about six issues of White Dwarf from the last 18. Fair enough. I'm really pleased with all six I bought. I have not needed to buy the other 12. Okay. On a, a related note of this little White Dwarf um, tangent the uh, so the campaign system do you need the white dwarf to play it if say 
the campaign master has the white dwarves, can they run it without everyone else having it? So long as they printed off the stratagems for phase two and three, I think it would probably be fine for just a GM to have it, or the CM. Yeah. Um, because realistically, they could relay the information each month about, you know, just saying, look, you know, if you win a game, you gain this many Warzone points. Um, if you're in phase two, um, like, you know, remember, if you win a game, you get this many Xenotech points. Do you, do so you get on. the impression that that, so is, got... that that is the intention of it, to be run like that? I think so, yeah. I, I think that is probably the intent. I don't think they expect every player, you know, to have three copies of White Dwarf each Yeah. every time they come to a game. You know, you only need to have maybe that set of issues for the gaming club as a whole. Yeah. So if anyone needs to reference a particular mission they want to play one week, yeah, they just get the club copy of the issue. Yeah. If they want to use a particular theatre of war, again, just pick up the club copy of the issue for that game. Yeah, it sounds like it's it's quite practically designed, so it's not um, they're not kind of expecting too much of people. If that yeah, makes sense, I think that's right. Like I say, I think there's very much that ethos of someone picking up the mantle of being the campaign manager and being the one who's going to put that effort in to make it work for the players. But the system itself, I think, is designed for only requiring that one real point of commitment, that one player who wants to make it work for the others. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that you've you've somewhat sold it on me as an idea. Um, <laughs> and uh, as as we uh, we kind of um, uh, transitioned from earlier, I was uh, running a tabletop simulator crusade campaign this uh, this might be something that uh, kind of uh, is right up my alley so yeah that basically sums up everything really with the Agavon campaign from White Dwarf so if you are interested in having a look or getting it for yourself then you just need to go out there and pick up those um, those three issues of White Dwarf which I think were 457 58 and 59 correct um, yeah and I would definitely suggest to anyone to keep an eye out or check in with future Flashpoint um, articles because I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it sort of develops and how similar future ones are to this one or how different they are. Um, I think it's an interesting new space for them to be able to explore these extra rules and stuff for 40k. So um, I know I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on them myself and we'll probably be covering them on future episodes. Right, so yeah, with that, we'll just move on to our last little bit of the show, which is our community spotlights. So we'll be back in one second, guys. And we're back, guys, for the final part of the show. So we're just going to make it a quick one this evening, but it is just our latest community spotlights. So, Dan, what have you got to talk about for us today? Right, so I'm going to talk about um, a nice man. He's uh, on instagram and twitch.tv as yet another alpharius all one word uh as the name suggests he does collect alpha legion um but he's also been doing some uh some blood angel successes that are, are really cool kind of 
off-white and gold scheme, uh, and they're called the Sin Eaters, so, which is uh, pretty cool. That's interesting. Um, uh, and his he's been streaming a bit of painting and a bit of um, tabletop simulator, playing various games against various people, which is it's quite cool. Um, he's also one of the kind of the regulars in the before times when we could play battles uh, on the Sorcerer Day battle reports with his oh, legion. Times. Yes. Before <laughs> the event. So yeah, uh, check him out. Uh, awesome. I'll do that myself. Um, it sounds like some really good uh, hobby content there. So yeah, I'll definitely go check that out. Um, as for myself, uh, I'm actually wanting to... <laughs> It's a little bit self-serving this one, but I want to highlight the Sub City Radio podcast. Um, so this is actually, honestly, one of like the premium Necromunda podcasts out there. Um, as some of you listening will know, I previously was on the Chronicles from the Underhive Necromunda podcast, um, and I'm now somewhat a friend of the show of um, Sub City, and their podcast is just excellent it really is good if you're a Necromunda fan go check it out you'll be amazed by the quality of the show but in particular I wanted to shout out um, episode 9 and the upcoming episode 11 because I actually did a guest spot for them on both those shows talking respectively about the House of Blades release for Escher in episode 9 and the recent House of Artifice um, release for Van Sargangs in the upcoming episode 11. Um, I had a, a great time recording with uh, Steve and Chris. And yeah, it's just, if you like yourself some Necromunda content, you are seriously missing out if you're not listening to some city radio. So uh, go check that out now, guys. So um, what's the what's the kind of unique selling point of uh, some city radio then? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, the fact it's Necromunda content it is in itself pretty unique because there's not I, I suppose so. Um, but the second thing really is the fact that it's called some city radio because the show is actually based as a, it's produced as if it is an actual radio station that exists in the underhive and is broadcasting across the hive to the inhabitants. So it's kind of like based within the universe. And Steve and Chris as the hosts are like the radio um, hosts of the show. But it's it's very impressive how they do it, but it does flow organically between like the in-universe world of this radio show and the fact that what they're talking about is obviously real-world hobbying and modelling and playing the game. So, you know, they, they discuss the game of Necromunda as the tabletop game that it is and how you play it and the releases from Games Workshop and so on. But then they have segments that are things like a weather report or a, a coronary um, section of the radio <laughs> show and so on. And those are uh, produced by the in-world characters. So like Cannabella is the um, the, the cannibal cook from the, from the uh, cookery <laughs> show. Um, there's uh, like Salacious Paul, who's basically the like the lack, um rumor monger and uh, like you know gossiper sort of thing who's uh, uh listing everything going on in the hive that people may or may not want to know about <laughs> um and all sorts of stuff they've got like correspondents like becky boom who's sort of like this explosive expert juve and she's currently um being recruited by a local escher gang and she's trying to 
uh, get the inside scoop on how the the subsidy sirens are operating and so on and it's just really clever um i think i think episode four they did a bit called hive aid and it's basically the you know this like live music festival in the hive in the support <laughs> of everything you know um everything going on and they had um you know uh, lots of like tribute bands and stuff involved like gun, uh, like guns and fungus <laughs> nice and so on it's just really clever what they do it's brilliant honestly it's some of the best production quality stuff i've ever seen for a podcast and i'm pleased to be you know even just a little bit a part of it from time to time so yeah Go check out some City Radio. If you enjoy Necromunda, you will not regret it. Awesome. Um, and yeah, I think that's about everything. Anything else you want to add on without the door, Dan? Don't think so. Excellent. Well then, until the next time, guys, this has been the Narrative Wargamer Podcast, helping you to discover more ways to play 40k. Bye.